We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James Peter This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast presented by MyBookie. We're here bringing you a little extra special end-of-the-season bonus episode. What's up, everyone? I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with the man himself, James E. Virgilio. Just wanted to come on and share some thoughts about that national championship game, some Gator news and notes. Just, you know, a little bonus episode for you guys. Hope you're going to enjoy it. James, how are you doing over there? I'm doing great. We've gotten requests uh, for a while about doing a true end-of-season episode. Perhaps some of you felt like we left things unfinished if we didn't talk about the national championship game. And now that we've really got things rolling here at the Gator Nation football podcast, we've got our video producer, uh, you know, video editor, producer, whatever Bama Shane wants to call himself out there, our producer, B-Red, we've just got that the ball is rolling. We can bring you content like this without Alan and I having to squeeze water from the rock, so to speak, to make it happen. So we are stoked about doing that. And as always, we are stoked and overjoyed that you listen to our podcast. If you like the content and you have not done this yet, by all means, follow us on social media, anyone, pick the one of your choice. We're not on Instagram, have no plans to go there or any other newfangled operations. We keep it as minimal as possible. Uh, you can sub to our channel on YouTube where we do have some pretty cool plans to do some field breakdowns in the off season. I won't spoil the surprise just yet. And you can become a patron on Patreon, where we are obviously so thankful for all of the donations that do, in fact, go to help support the show. Of course, Alan and I have full-time jobs, but it does help support us uh, do other things and other ventures like bringing you the YouTube uh, film reviews. So last week, we had a brand new donor, just one. She gets all the attention this time, which we're happy to give it to her. We had Stacy come in with an annual large donor, what we call the Kyle Pitts Dono. Thanks so much, Stacy. Welcome aboard. Still on the throne. He's been quiet. We have not heard from him in quite some time. Perhaps we need to put out an APB for him. I don't know. But Alexander Leventhal, uh, the man, the myth, and the legend. Our Dono Legend category is still at 300. But the next time we hop on this air, which will be in February, that number is going up. Thanks to all of our Dono Legends, which Alan faithfully announces each and every week. 
a great collection of people here. Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stosh Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mark Jackson, Tim Honderick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, the newly minted legends here, Cooper and Kylie Craig, and Mark Rubenstein. What's up, everybody? Thanks for your support. James, we saw a beatdown. Ultimately, in that national title game, Ohio State could just not keep up with that Bama juggernaut. Bama wins 52-24. Kind of an anticlimactic title game. Your thoughts on it? Big picture? I mean, seven national titles for Nick Saban, right? Ridiculous. If you're Ryan Day and you're Ohio State, perhaps he's not Urban Meyer, at least not yet. That's a big takeaway. He wasn't ready to compete with the best yet. You can't just look at one team, but you start looking at three-year tests and other things. He wasn't ready for that stage. I was most perplexed, as I'm sure a lot of you were, (laughs) with Ohio State's chosen game plan. I don't understand, Alan, what's happening in college football where these defenses don't just simply do all they can to take away a team's best player. It's like they don't even want to try to do it. And Ohio State, quite stubbornly playing the hubris defense that Bama played against us, decided they had some guys they thought could cover Devontae Smith one-on-one. And Alabama doing what we've highlighted on film all season long, Alan. It was kind of fun to see this. And Sarkeesian was really masterful at doing this. Indeed. playing one level ahead of you and as simple and as risk-free as possible. Why take a risk if we don't have to? We're just going to do some backfield motion stuff, recognize your one-on-one, make you chase our fastest player, get some good wide receiver blocking, and steal touchdown after touchdown after touchdown against you to where Mac Jones winds up breaking all these records, and he rarely ever had to throw the ball downfield. He was just racking up plays on super simple passes, which is a tremendous credit to how good Alabama was at utilizing their personnel and their scheme and exploiting what teams were giving to them, which is masterful you know, coaching by them. So no surprise, Nick Saban has a system and a culture and a consistent winning formula, and it was on display yet again. Yeah, it's a really tough combination. If you're going to have a player at, of Devonta Smith's caliber, and then you're going to do a fantastic job of scheming him open, over and over again. And then Ohio State compounded that by playing right into their hands, you know, chasing somebody across the formation when clearly that's not going to work, especially in those tight situations where they only need a couple yards. And yeah, they did not have the answers. I mean, Alabama is almost impossible to stop. You would just hope to slow them down enough to compete with them. And then, you know, this game was probably going to come down to Justin Fields. Could he be? As masterful as he was against Clemson, he wasn't even close to that. Uh, I'm sure losing Trey Sermon on the first play of the game did not help them, but that did not affect the way them slowing down Devonta Smith. So Alabama made it look fairly easy, frankly. And this is a good Ohio State team. Not the one that had, I think, had to obviously run a gauntlet to get there. But this is a very talented team up and down the board. You know, star players at a lot of key positions. And this Alabama team is just absolutely loaded. And this is, I mean, I, I talked about their defensive line not being like star studded, but they have special players all over the field. And 
enough on offense, right, that they could get it done even if Jalen Waddle is not there or just shelve himself. Um, and, you know, Devonta Smith doesn't – they don't even need him in the second half because they're up so big. Which is crazy, right? He has 11 catches in the first half. I mean, he's just setting records. You think, is he going to get 20-plus catches in this game? He Which would I have. think he would have easily had he not, unfortunately for him, dropped that pass, and then that causes him to have his finger uh, get injured. But but this is one reason why when Mullen was hired here at Florida, Alan, we said winning an SEC title is so difficult because every year you have to go through Nick Saban. And now you also potentially have to go through Jimbo Fisher. These are guys who have won national championships in your own division you have to go through Kirby Smart I don't care how you feel about Kirby Smart he has a loaded deck of talent every year and you could see you mentioned this you just mentioned that Bama although they don't have some of their typical position players especially in the D-line or elsewhere those guys are not hacks they're not average level players no whereas with Ohio State you saw that Ohio State despite the massive amounts of talent that roster has they still have position groups that are just vastly inferior to what Alabama is rolling out there. And you will never see that with a Bama team. Even when they're weak, it's not like they have some three or four or five spot area where athletically they just don't have it. Last year, they just lacked all the experience at linebacker. But athletically, it wasn't like those guys couldn't run with people. And that took a plague of injuries to wipe Correct. Them out. It took everything to happen. And so this year, you lose Waddle, who was an all-world receiver. No problem. We'll just break all the records, right? And and that's why it's it's just such a task for anyone to compete with such greatness that Nick Saban has going. It's the harmony of everything. Great coaching, great execution, great talent development, and, and phenomenal recruiting. And to beat that is very difficult. The best-case scenario for most fans— all throughout college football is to hope that Nick Saban gets tired of winning and wants to retire. That's what I was going to say. I think college football is going to be better off once he decides to hang it up. It will be wide open, uh, seemingly wide open. Dabo, all those guys are there, but nobody is like Nick Saban. I mean, definitely opens up a spot potentially in the playoffs every year or just makes it, yeah, there's one less juggernaut. And I think... so many comparisons, everything gets skewed, right? If you're if you're only judged against Alabama as the level of success, then everyone is a failure. Even Clemson is a failure, right? And that that is a terrible bar to set because this Clemson program is a fantastic success by every metric. So I, I don't know, like if we're ever going to be back to normal because the ghost of Alabama will will hang with us for a while, even over their program. But for right now they don't seem like they're going to slow down at all. No, they're not. And why, why would they? They just reload, as Devontae Smith said. And, and sometimes they get players back, like Devontae Smith, who stays, right? Don't, don't forget right. that. He could have gone. He didn't. He just stayed. And, and I love the story for him. You know, if he comes out in the draft last year, he's a guy people like. They take him. He's solid. But now he comes out, and you have people, you know, probably overvaluing him. In my opinion, I think he's fantastic. He's Jerry Rice-like with how he glides across the field. He's going to be a solid NFL receiver. But sadly for him, he rarely faced a corner or anyone like he'll face in the NFL where they're going to actually, you know, they're going to they're going to make you earn it more. And I'm taking nothing away from him, by the way. Um, but he's clearly a sensation now. Whereas last year he was another Alabama receiver. And, and that's awesome. I, I love when guys stay and it all works out like that. And he's a guy that his team looked up to, and he's a great figure for college football. 
it's just a nice thing in a world that's become increasingly cynical, increasingly money grab oriented. Anytime you get something like this, it's refreshing. It's his story is nice. I mean, what a career. And, you know, the first time people really know his name is catching that pass against Georgia in the title game and then closing it out with just a dominating performance. Um, Yeah, I mean, he there's a mock draft. I saw him going number three. So, which is a major improvement. Over yeah, where he I would say so. I, I don't know if he'll actually go that high, but I mean, I think he's going to go in the first round, assuredly. Oh, I mean, so. how can you not? I love too that Devonte Adams. My favorite comment of the night was Devonte Adams's tweet, which they displayed. It said, "In the future, if you misspell my name, make sure you take off the e." You know, because like he's that boy, you know, yeah. like just giving him all the respect he can. Like here's Devontae Adams, one of the best receivers in the NFL, having a great season, basically saying like, hey, it's perfectly cool if you mess my name up as long as it looks like his because he is he is balling out there. I mean, that was a display. And again, you mentioned this schematically, and we're not going to talk a lot about the schematics here, but Alabama is really crafty with how they use him. They line him up all over the field, wide receiver, interiorly. They move him back with those motions into the running back area. They do that to confuse college defenses because they do say, hey, I want this guy to cover him, and then the safety may or may not help. Well, now if you line him up all over the place, pre-snap, they have to find him, and then they got to figure out who's helping. Then they got to figure out how they're defending the rest of the team, and it slows them down, whereas in the NFL, they're way faster. They recognize how they want to handle it. They're also going to switch all those things, and they're going to switch how they bracket. So if you start motioning like that, they'll just pass it off, and they'll also pass off the double. But that is hard stuff for a college football team. Indeed. Now, to me, Alan, it's not hard enough that they can't do it. To me, if I'm a college D coordinator, I'm getting my team to pass that stuff off. And you better believe that I'm going to live with my nickelback and my safety doubling Devontae Smith rather than chasing him all over the field with one guy. Right. So it's not excusable, but it's understandable that Alabama is 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 taking advantage of it because they're not just lining up a wide receiver and saying, go beat somebody one-on-one. Every single play is all over the field. And these players have to find him, see him come out of the huddle. Where's he going? What's my assignment? There's a motion. Now what, my, now what is my assignment? You're slowing them down just enough that it creates these big plays. Yeah. And Alabama was almost like the test case to do this, right? Because the, the other guys, Mechie, they're good players, right? They, you should respect them. They're not just garbage guys. They're very talented He's so clearly their preference and their number one option that it's worth your time to devise a completely complicated scheme to cover him, right? Whereas it's just a maybe a normal team where their best guy is like 25% better than the rest of the guys. It might not be worth your effort. But in this case, it's kind of stunning that they didn't do that. And it, it certainly cost them. Um, you want to talk about Justin Fields real quick? I um, do. I want to. So he was super impressive in the game against Clemson so much so that people are like, I don't know. Is he the number one pick? I, I didn't ever buy that, but is this more just a little bit of a regression or what was your thoughts on him as a pro quarterback? Yeah, this is who he is. I think the reason why I love watching film so much is you get enough of a sample size that you begin to see what guys do well and what they do not. And Justin Fields is a guy who with the right matchup, the right situations can do really well. That was displayed this season. And he's also a guy that can really struggle, which was also displayed this season. First against Indiana, who's a well-organized defense. They run a really solid zone. They confused him multiple times very badly. 
And then you can see throughout the year that what does Justin Fields struggle with? He struggles to read the football field. He does not see the field well. That's not an uncommon thing for a guy of his age and stage. Uh, Once upon a time, Allen quarterbacks would have stayed all four years in college football. One big reason was they would have learned with every single year more and more about how to do those things, those kind of NFL-ready skills. So Field is a project that people love because of the success right now of mobile quarterbacks in the NFL uh, that are strong like him. And there has been a lot more success for them recently. I could make an argument they're not winning championships yet, but certainly the NFL likes that tool. I think they all view him as a project guy where they can teach those skills to because by all accounts, he's a smart guy. Now, it's one thing if he takes the Wonderlick, which is kind of you know way too simplified example here, and he just bombs it. There might be some more concerns there. But as long as the acumen is there, I think they feel like this is a guy we can teach. He's still learning the game. He'll sit, he'll sit in the bench for a year or two maybe, and we'll develop him. Um, but to me, he showed kind of what he is. And he faced, this is a crazy stat, Alan, he faced a Bama defense who presses more than anyone else in college football. Their two corners play press man more, which of course we all know I love, more than anyone else. And Justin Fields had only played 11 snaps the entire season against teams playing press man with both of their corners. That is remarkable to think that the NFL strategy against these spread offenses is almost by default to press. And to see college, which in my opinion is woefully playing their hand incorrectly, with all the soft coverage playing off. And so for Fields, I think the really significant question is, how does he throw into smaller windows in the NFL? Because right now on film, there's not a lot to encourage you. So there's a lot of time for him to develop. So basically, what is he? He's what he is. He's got a lot of variants. He's a project guy. You like the talent and the upside, you can take him. But he's certainly not NFL ready, not right now. So a lot of times when you would hear a project kind of guy, there's other things that might be included with that in terms of accuracy and like mechanics and stuff. He looks good throwing the ball when he knows where he wants to throw it. He throws a really nice ball, accurate to lots of different levels of the field. You see some of those seam throws to his tight ends the last couple of games have been very impressive. And so even, you know, someone like Josh Allen was much more of a project than him. And he is had a miraculous season where he's his completion percentages improved by a ton. They had to fix a lot of his mechanics. They had to fix some of the things that you're talking about in terms of reading the field. And he's turned into, you know, and not just an excellent quarterback, but a game changing type quarterback. So I think the same things could be true of Justin Fields. You know, maybe that they're not at the level of Lamar Jackson, where he's more of an athlete, less of a quarterback that if you can calibrate him correctly, you know, the sky's the limit. So I think he's definitely worth the risk. I don't know if I would take him number two. I'd want to know more. I'd want to scout him really in depth if I was an NFL team. But I mean, you can, you can see why people are so enamored of him because if you can help teach him that one part of it, the there's nothing that he can't do. Yeah. And those are good examples. And that's what you're doing in the NFL, by the way, like the hit rate for NFL quarterbacks is about 50% in the first round if they become a starter or not, which seems low. In my opinion, that's not low. It's so hard to know if you can play at the next level. There is a huge difference between college and the NFL. Anytime we've had former pros on our show, we used to have guests a lot more. They'll all echo this. Like their first practice in the NFL is mind blowing. It's just so much faster. It's way higher level. And for quarterbacks, it's like times two 
the level of difficulty. Uh, so you just never know, but you take your shot for the reasons you just mentioned. In the best case scenario, can this guy win a Super Bowl is kind of how people look at it. And that's a guy with fields that you think, hey, look, these other guys have made it. Perhaps kind of the, the poor man's example is Ryan Tannehill, a guy who was a receiver, became a quarterback, was a raw project guy. And now he's molded himself into a really nice, cerebral, safe, ball-protecting quarterback. Can you win a Super Bowl with him? I don't know, probably not, but he's consistently a winner in the NFL. And he was a long-term and feels a lot project, further along and than feels he was. much exactly much further along athlete, big arm, smart, kind of the same idea though. And so that's why I think you can say, well, wait a minute, if these guys are, are being successful and he's got even more talent, what could happen? And that's that's the book on him. Is this going to crash his draft stock? No. Is it going to hurt it? Yes. I think this will raise some more questions. This is by far the most organized, the most NFL-like defense he's faced. He struggled. Yes, he lost his best running back, but he still had everyone else there. It's not going to be anything, though, that deters the narrative of what you just mentioned. He's a project guy. This would be much more damning against a guy like Kyle Trask with all of his weapons. That would have been like a death sentence for him to a certain degree because it would have been like this guy is proving he can't do it. So for Fields, it's a different it's a different scope. All right, Mass, of the Saban era, is this the best Alabama team? You know, I don't think so. When like the first blush is no from like watching them on film, but then the more you think about it, uh, you know, outside of the game against Florida, you can the game against Ole Miss was a real game. Kind of felt fluky, COVID year. You know, the Bama team certainly thinks that Ole Miss had some lean on their signals, which seems like that's potentially likely given how the rest of the season went for them. So if you throw that game out, they pretty much dominated everyone. Our game, they also dominated us. And then we like snuck back in with some heroic efforts at the end to make it a real game. But they were double digits ahead basically the whole game. And they were they were cruising. The level of difficulty that they faced seemingly was none. And they played an all SEC schedule. Yeah. So at first blush, no, I'm like, nope, they're not good enough because of this and that. But then when you unpack it more, you well, maybe. I mean, wait a minute. Like who who are they not better than? And that's why I'm gonna say. I don't know. I, I think I wanted to say no right about like I said, but then you start to think through it. They're flawed. Every college football team has flaws, but perhaps their upside, especially with their offense, and their defense was capable. Make no mistake about it. This is not a terrible defense by any stretch of the imagination. This is a pretty darn good college football team. Yeah, you know, obviously their defensive metrics have been much higher in previous years, but the SEC has shifted towards much more offensive kind of alignment philosophy and profile. So yeah, I don't know if you take those vintage Alabama defenses and put them into 2020, they probably would have struggled. Maybe not. They would have been better in some ways and worse than others, but this is certainly of the few most potent Alabama offenses up there. I mean, the two, one from a couple of years ago, but you know, they lost two games. So, Oh, this is definitely the best offense they've had by far. I mean, you've got, yeah, Najee Harris, starter in the NFL, impact starter by all accounts. Then you've got, you know, Devontae Smith, impact starter, Waddle, impact starter. Uh, their entire offensive line yeah, that's is really going to play in the NFL. All of them are going to be starters. I mean, that's ludicrous to think on a college football team that you could have seven or eight guys in the NFL. And then Mac Jones, although we talk about him as being like maybe overvalued, and you said this best, Alan, which, which we should say on the podcast right now. It's an unfortunate scenario that even myself, I got caught up in this. You start fighting for your guy, Kyle Trask. You start fighting for what you see on film as what you think to be the better quarterback. And because of the awards 
you start to kind of detract from a guy that you're not trying to detract from Matt Jones. He's a good quarterback. If there's no Heisman Award, I have nothing negative to say about Matt Jones other than that he's doing his job perfectly for the team he's on and he's crushing everyone. And so there's Mac Jones, an NFL potential quarterback. I have questions about him at the next level. But either way, another NFL player. And you're saying, okay, well, who's maybe not an NFL player on their team? One, maybe two of their starting guys? Maybe? Maybe. That's ridiculous. That's insane. And on top of that, the production is insane. I mean, they were scoring on like 92% of their drives. You just couldn't stop them. Nobody could. And you look at what LSU did last year, and they basically just went and outdid it. So, yeah, to your mark, this is a really hard team to beat. And it doesn't seem like you couldn't find a single team in college football that was even remotely near their tier if you stop and think about it. Unless you start having what we like to play here is the wishful game. Well, what if we combine Florida's offense with someone else's defense? Well, that's not real. That didn't happen this year. And that's why, obviously, we were all so frustrated is we felt like we could have been that team Perhaps this game, Allen proved the ceiling shot for Florida this year was what we all thought it was, championship level. And the defense let us down, which we knew. And maybe we were closer than anyone else this year. So the preseason narratives were correct. Uh, But yeah, what a great Alabama team. I think we'll appreciate them more as time goes on. uh, Because maybe next year they come out and they just roll everyone again with this offense. And you think, well, wait a minute. It's just like plug and play. But for now, great question. Think about it on your own. I don't know. I, I want to say no, but as you walk, as I walk myself through it, I say maybe not. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, other people have pointed this out that Florida has essentially given the past two national champions their best game in the last two seasons. So uh, moral victories, if you like to count those there, those are fine. I mean, just interesting note for Mullen getting his team up for the toughest opponent and giving them their best, you know, most adversarial stance there. So seems to me like you're a perfect definition of a gatekeeper. <laughs> that's what, that's what good gatekeepers can do, right? You have to beat them to win a title and then you can be really feisty against them, but then you have inexcusable results against other people, which right. that's a thing for me. I got a lot of messages about this. You might have to Alan. It's like, Oh, well we're clearly the second best team in the country. Like you can't, you can't take a look at what you did on your best day and then say that's who you are. It doesn't work that way in sports. It's the, it's the consistency with which you played. And Florida obviously had way too much variance. Yeah, sure. We had a puncher's chance of beating anybody. But more often than not, you're going to lay some colossal egg like you did against LSU, which is inexcusable. Alabama is never going to lose to LSU in this season. It's just not going to happen. And that's the difference in variation. So could we have beaten Alabama? Sure, we could have. That's why sports are great. But you can't look at us and say, see, we're right there. We're right there. And then also look at everything else and say, and there's still some pieces that are missing. We're not, you know, at the point we need to. But yeah, sure. Two years in a row. You're right. Our top shot has been a legit top shot. And we'll see. And if you shore up some of the inconsistency, then you're a step closer. So the variance on the high end is really cool. The variance on the low end is not good. So yeah, you're right. To lose that and that LSU game, I think it's going to stick with Florida fans for a little while because I think it probably did end up costing Kyle Trask a chance at a potential Heisman. So, um, and it really left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. The optics around the program are a lot different if Florida wins that game. Huge, and it left us out of the playoff and things. But but this is the key, and this is perhaps the the level that you're at. Is in life, you look and you say, "Here's what the data says I am." 
Here's Dan Mullen's track record. Here's our wins. And here's what it could have been. And that's what's so tempting with Coach Mullen, right? It's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, James. If if he had just beaten LSU and he'd beaten A&M, and he would have been, yeah, he would have, but didn't. Well, if he would have fired Grantham, well, he didn't. And, and it's like you said, I think the optics could have been a lot different even this offseason. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. Had he done some different things? Because there's so much raw material there, as we've been noting. He's obviously a top-level offensive coordinator, developer of talent on that side of the ball. Yet you can't play the what-if game because the what-if game is not a real game because he didn't do those things. And you can always be tantalizingly close, so to speak. But at some point in time, you have to win. But either way, is Florida much closer to winning these games than we were for the past 10 years? Of course. A Jim McElwain team, right? Um, a must-champ team is never coming close to playing with this year's Alabama team. So Dan Mullen is a gifted and special offensive mind and coordinator. That unit is balling. We continue to hope something will change on the other side to well-round it all out. But as you see Nick Saban say, and this is perhaps the final comment for me on the Bama team, it's a system. It's a way of life for him. You heard him say it, right? He loved this year's team, Alan, because how they bought into the program, the culture, how they play, what they do. He has his coaches buy into this. There's a unified system and plan. He's a systematic thinker. Nothing is unaddressed. Nothing is without answering the why question. Nothing is just happenstance. And that's why he is so good. And that is why for Coach Mullen to compete with Saban, he's going to have to equal that level of attention to detail and commitment to winning at every single level. Coaching, recruiting, player development, personnel choice. You can't leave a single dead spot, so to speak, because if your opponent is not, you're giving something up to them. And that's the hurdle point. everybody has to overcome. And if you like tennis, right, you had Nadal. You have like the greatest generation in tennis right now. Um, Djokovic, you know, Nadal, uh, Federer. These guys are duking it out. And as you mentioned, that doesn't mean that all the other guys that have won some championships, especially against them, suck and are failures. They're not. Not everyone is going to be one of the greatest of all time. We may never see another Nick Saban. Other great ones will come up, but what he has done in this era of competition is something that you just say that's phenomenal. I think he's clearly the best college football coach of all time. And I don't no know that it's even really close. Not a debate at all. Remarkable stuff. And the guy looks like he doesn't age every single year. He like looks the same consistently. I don't know how he does that either. Cause he's what 70 now. I don't, who can say really, who knows he's, he's ageless. All right. It is my bookie time. Daytona Steve, if you're listening, which of course I know you are uh, with, with now, basketball season in full swing and soon to be a bunch of other sports in full swing as well my bookie is still your place to go if you're going to put action on the games no matter what you're betting on you want to do it with a reputable brand like my bookie you can still make your deposit using our promo code gator nation and they will match you halfway to give you a head start on building your bankroll put 200 bucks in or more and get an extra 100 to play with joining and depositing is a simple process it's quick and more importantly when it's time to get paid that's quick too. Treat yourself to some extra cash in your pocket this winter season by investing in your intuition. It's not just winter season, it's winning season. Bet, win, and get paid with my bookie at mybookie.ag. Enter the promo code GatorNation for a 50% deposit match. Okay, we both smartly picked Bama, giving up seven and a half there. But that's nothing compared to Daytona Steve's props. If you were looking at those, he hit on. 
seven out of 11 of those. So on fire, especially at the beginning of the game, just racking up those wins. He killed it. Sadly, we got them out late, which is honestly Daytona Steve's fault. You know, I mean, what else would Steve. you what else would you think of from? Well, a yeah, he, he, we got we got a great Steve. a great uh, uh, Twitter post before on Monday saying, where is Daytona Steve? Is he like lost at the dog track somewhere? Like, why don't we have his picks yet? You know, he's too busy uh, gambling on the on the pups. But he did come through. He did put them out there. If you happen to follow us on Twitter and you got them in in time, then you had a nice successful day of making money off the props. And Daytona Steve, uh, he's not he's not gone for the offseason for each and every episode that we do after this one he will be giving you some classic Daytona Steve bets. So locks and parlays will be here to stay. He is a basketball fan, probably first and foremost. So expect yeah. some good stuff around March Madness time, but certainly not the last you've heard of him in this season. Well, let me ask you this. Now that we finished the playoffs as a whole, it was very controversial about who should be included. Tons of debate. One of the reasons, one of the things I like about a 14 playoff is the debate. I think it's a fun, it's a feature, not a bug. Do you think the correct teams were included? Well, you'll never know that, right? As an investor, you like to say the hindsight portfolio is undefeated. <laughs> True. If you look back in time, well, if I would have done this, then I would have made all this. Or Right. Well, again, hindsight's undefeated. There's no way to know. I just know that I'm always going to die on the hill for more teams. I think eight's perfect. I don't want 12. I don't want 16. I don't want March Madness. You can't be losing three or four games against the schedule in college football where you are not playing good teams all the time. It's not the NFL where a team that gets that wins 10 wins should be in, you know, it, this is college. Like you're going to play maybe three, four at the most really tough games a year. You can lose maybe two of them at the most and get in. I think eight's better. Why? Again, I gave you my impassioned. This is America speech. We're built on the underdog. I want to see the underdog have a chance. I don't care if most years they lose. Sometimes they'll win. Uh, but sure, they got it right this year. I suppose as long as Alabama was in the playoff, they were going to get it right. But I still found myself with that Alabama-Notre Dame matchup just didn't seem compelling enough. And how would you make a more compelling one? I think you would have just done Alabama and Ohio State and then Clemson and A&M. It, does it matter? Probably not. So in essence, to your question, Alan, sure. But so, I, still, yeah. I still would want to see eight. A&M fans a little salty, and then you know that st- score t- comes down. It's the same score that Alabama beat A&M by. And that was one of the main reasons why A&M AM got kept out of the playoff, but I don't know that you can make the necessary one-to-one c- comparison. But you know, here's here's the thing, the case against Ohio State, even though I think they obviously proved their worth with that Clemson win, is you take a look at Florida. You know, those three extra games that they would have had to play, were they gonna lose them? Probably not. But what was the likelihood that Florida was gonna lose to LSU? Extremely low. Oh, tiny. I mean, crazy low. And it happened. And it killed us. And, you know, also just that who's not available for those next games, right? So um, this is obviously a very, very strange season. We're not going to have to deal with this problem, hopefully in the future, about different numbers of games. But I just want to say I, I don't think that the AM fans have that much of a argument. I mean, certainly you can't know for sure about who's technically the most deserving, but I think Ohio State's win against Clemson you know, kind of showed what they were worth. And I think Clemson would have been favored over A&M by a good amount. And I I don't think most people had truly an issue with Ohio State. I think Notre Dame was was more on principle. Yeah, Notre Dame was the one. They beat beat half of a Clemson team. The ACC gives them a colossal layup and makes them not play an extra. The optics were bad. They get crushed by Clemson. 
The optics for A&M were better, in my opinion. Uh, but either way, Alabama was going to win no matter what you did. But I think you throw eight in there. Give us some more football that matters in a playoff situation. Just allow some upsets to potentially happen. That would be fun. Either way, it does seem like we're getting closer to that now, especially when you see, again, people like Urban, who were staunchly against expanding Mac Brown, others. It does seem like now that that ship is gonna is gonna come into port at some point in time. Yeah, so when I'm the next, happier now than I've been before about the future for the eighteen playoffs. When the contract runs out, they will certainly expand it to eight. I think that's a foregone conclusion at this point. Right, you've got some coaching corners for us here. Yeah, <laughs> you came into the house pretty fired up about a couple of these NFL situations. I mean, they're kind of mind bending. We don't talk a ton of NFL. A lot of playoffs games this weekend, obviously, with the NFL expanding their playoffs. I label this NFL coaches choke punting. So both Mike Vrabel and Mike Tomlin, two very well-respected coaches for the most part. You've talked about Vrabel being ahead of the game on tons of kind of in-game coaching management. Tomlin, you know, doesn't have that rep, but obviously is one of the more successful coaches in the NFL. Both of them did baffling things when it comes to punting and I'll just put these together here and you can comment on either one or the both but the Titans who in a very tough game with the Ravens they're trailing 17-14 17-13 excuse me in the fourth quarter they're facing only a fourth and two at the Baltimore 40 yard line right and I believe this is the one where they elect to punt and I'm pretty sure they're the ones who end up punting in the end zone you know they pick up like 20 yards of field position there this seemed stunning at the time. Can you even make a case for why they punted here? Well, we can say why they did it and then obliterate that reasoning. But the idea is... In good faith, can you come up with a good argument? Right. Though? Well, no. Cause I'm, obviously, I wouldn't do it. But here's the argument, right? Is, well, Baltimore is struggling to score. They don't pass well. We're going to we're gonna pin them deep. And we trust our punter. In the NFL, the odds of punting in, inside the 10-yard line there is really high. Yeah. So we'll put him inside the 10, put some pressure on him, and then we'll take our shot next time. Now, that is absolute nonsense. And it's shocking from Vrabel, who, as we've talked about, has been maybe one of the best coaches in the NFL to exhibit a true understanding of expected value. I mean, he's been on top of some of the best moments of coaching corner this season. That is a layup. That is an absolute cookie. You have got to go for that. And if you don't get it, it's not even a big deal. Why? Because Baltimore's struggling to score on you. So who cares about your field position? Fourth and two for a team like the Titans. Derrick Henry was struggling all day long. It doesn't matter. Baltimore still has to respect him. They were overplaying him all day. Fourth and two is a great distance to go for it. This is a slam dunk go for it decision. You do not forfeit the game. The EV is absolutely super positive in your favor. Your choke punning comment is the best. This is where our own emotions can make us violate our systematic based thinking. And again, for investors, this plagues professional investors and amateurs alike. You have a system, you research it, you spend years building it, and then something happens. And you're watching in a real time and you think, man, the system says I need to do this. This is for good reason. It's for good purpose. I put a lot of time into this. But your human emotion says, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I don't want to not get it. It's going to be bad. Momentum's going to swing. I'll punt. That's not the right thing to do. It was a failure by Vrabel. I'm sure right now, wherever he is, he's thinking, I wish I would not have done that. Because if he could have gotten that, gone for it, if they score a touchdown there, you might just knock out a Ravens team with Lamar Jackson, who's got the weight of the world on him because he had not won a playoff game 
And instead, you punted and never, ever got a chance really again for that kind of moment. So that was, in my opinion, Alan, just a huge mistake. And just as baffling, Pittsburgh rallies back. They were down 28 nothing in the first quarter. Have the game momentum in their favor. They're trailing 35-23 to begin the fourth quarter. They're facing a fourth and one at, on their own 40. But with that score discrepancy in that point of the game, it's still almost crazier that they punted. Potentially. This one's interesting because if you look at momentum here, all right, Ravens-Titans game, momentum is hanging. It's waiting for someone to take the game, which game theory would tell you that's when you want to be aggressive. Just as a default, be aggressive when the game is hanging. All right. So in this game, now you were down 28 nothing. So now you've gone on a 23-7 to run. The momentum meter is so strongly on your side that I think Tomlin thought to himself, we're back in the game right now. We're in the game. It's 35-23. I don't want to not be in the game because if I don't get this, they're basically the game is over if they score, right? That's what he's thinking, which you could potentially defend at that point in time. Punt play defense. Pittsburgh's defense has been good all year. It was not good in this game. But for me, Alan, I think this sent a message to your team. This is where you got to factor in everything. Your team is rallying. They are the aggressor. You have your opponent on their heels. Ask yourself this question. What would my opponent yes, exactly. want me to do? They would want me to punt 100% of the time. They do not want me to go for this. They feel the pressure on them. They feel this tsunami coming at them. And if they happen to stop you on fourth down, yes, they feel this wave of relief. But, I mean, if you could have gone and asked Cleveland, what do you want us to do right now? They would have told you, please punt, please punt. Which exactly. tells you all you need to know if you're Great Tomlin. Point. You have got to go for that there. They missed a huge opportunity and then never got back into the game because of it. Uh, one of the more surprising starts to an NFL playoff game in some time. Just a comedy of errors from the Steelers. And they had a chance. They were there. They had a chance. So I'm going to call that choke punting as well. I love that. That was an emotional Again, there's some rationale for that, but total misjudgment of the situation. Just the scores there, how much they still need to score. Uh, it feels like kind of giving up. I, I hear what the argument that you made there, but I would have gone for that every time. You have to, I think. Your team is feeling it. You're feeling it again. And when in doubt, like we talked about, when in doubt, ask yourself, what does my opponent want me to do? And generally do the opposite. That's there a great. Go. That's a great way to think about it. Okay, let's go. Let's turn our attention to the Florida Gators. Some news out there, and then we'll talk about maybe some offseason storylines here. We talked about this a good amount, but last week, all the rumors from about what's going to happen with Dan Mullen. I got texts from tons of people asking me what's going on with this Dan Mullen thing. We talked about it a good amount, but in, in the midst of a ton of other things, we addressed um, more thoughts from you on. The whole Mullen to the Jets rumors. Kind well, of you know, we kind of hit the social media world, talked about it on the podcast. And obviously the main thing is there's two sides to every story. So, you know, try to kind of read between the lines and see what's happening. Uh, we were quite confident given, you know, kind of the information we were privy to that this was in fact a smokescreen for a contract extension, which I think now is clearly sort of become the narrative that that everyone is on. Whether or not that's a good look for Dan Mullen is up for debate. I don't think that it is. I think there's other ways he could have handled that than to do this, especially after a rough offseason for him. Very questionable way to float that. 
By all accounts, the NFL is not interested in Dan Mullen right now. That does not mean Dan Mullen's not interested in them. It's possible, even likely maybe, that he is, and that one day he wants to go there, but that's not what's happening right now. Uh, So I think it's safe to say that Dan Mullen will be back with Florida next year. Now the big question, Alan, becomes, do they get a contract extension done? How do you, as a fan, feel about it? How do they handle the buyout? How do they handle all of these situations? Because Dan Mullen, as we've chronicled, has eviscerated more relationship capital in the past two months than I have seen any Florida coach do at any point in time that we've paid attention to Gator football. So how does that go over with a fan base that is not thrilled with a lot of decisions that have happened? It's remarkable to think about that being something we're talking about, but here we are. So... The extension world is interesting. Most coaches are the way the current culture and the model works is like you always want to keep your guy four to five years out. Like so that when he's recruiting, this is the narrative that people can't say, well, I mean, the school's not that committed to him. Look, he doesn't look, his contract is so short. My guy's got this long contract. We all know that doesn't actually mean anything because you can get fired with however many years left on your contract. Right. So I don't mind at rolling another year into it. I just don't would never want to increase the buyout. So if there's a way to do that, like where it doesn't increase the buyout level, and he, you know, you you have him under contract for another year, right? So it doesn't just run out. Great, I'm fine. I I want to. I'm fine extending Dan Mullen. You know, keeping him out there for another four years, keeping that in front of him. But that buyout should continue to go down to where it's basically nothing after, since the last time you did it because I, I'm hugely against these massive buyouts hugely against them and that's everything that's well said do we care at the podcast here if Dan Mullen signs a 20-year extension if there's no guaranteed money on the hook if we fired him two years from now no who cares I don't care it doesn't matter the reason these contract extensions matter is when you bury yourself behind a buyout wall, which is what you're talking about. And that's the only thing to look at. Don't worry about how long the extension is. Worry about the guaranteed money Florida would have to pay in the event they fired Dan Mullen. And that's where the negotiation is going to center. Coaches have done a phenomenal job in ramping that number astronomically high. Well, agents, really. Correct. Despite the failure rate they have, it makes no sense. It's an absolute misappropriation. Now in a free market, over time, this will correct itself. This will start to correct itself. This is a big moment for Scott Strickland. It's the first chance Florida fans have got to see him handle something difficult. This will be difficult. We will see what the result is, Alan, but you're right. The contract extension itself, that's not that important, but those numbers are those numbers are, and you better believe that Coach Mullen and his agent Jimmy Sexton are going to push for the moon on that buyout. And well, that's Jim, and so Florida's we like to vilify agents. Sometimes I do too, right? But their job is to get the best deal for their client. They're not thinking about UF. They're not thinking about college football. They're thinking about their clients and their bottom line. So I, I wouldn't want them to do immoral things. But floating rumors is you know part and parcel of their trade, right? So it's up to the agents or excuse me, the athletic directors and the coaches to come to some kind of real consensus about what's actually fair. And right now we're in, we're imbalanced, right? These buyouts are ludicrous. They're not, they're not helpful to anybody 
except for the coaches and their, you know, their wallets. Right. And I think that's what's interesting, of course, like negotiation is something that fascinates me and I love it. And and yeah, there's one school of negotiation, which is the win at all cost school, which is the school that Jimmy Sexton subscribes to and several other mega agents do Scott Boris of baseball. It's just win at all costs. You lose, I win. Personally, I hate that style of negotiation because I think it's, let's call it being a bad neighbor. Dan mm. Mullen is the head coach of the Florida Gators right now, and he's representing our brand. And with these rumors floating around, with him not addressing them at all, you're, you're, it's selfish. It's an uber selfish, what can I do to maximize my value look? And the reality in life, Alan, is humans are not successful unless they're in a community of sorts. We need each well other. Said. Dan Mullen needs Scott Strickland in Florida, and Florida needs him. And when you go off on your own and become a mercenary, when you're a bounty hunter— it does not work out well. And that's one reason why the NFL, in my opinion, sadly, has a lot of players that get jaded because they feel like somebody was bounty hunting them and they lose all ability to be loyal and to really flourish in an environment where everyone is doing what's best for the organization. And that includes not floating rumors and not denying them so that you can try to maximize your dollar value which I think right now is not a great look on Dan, but I think the same thing is true for agents. So there is a market value argument. You always want to get your market value. There are different ways to go about doing it. Case in point here for Florida and for all athletic directors is this will be a very interesting negotiation. We will see what happens. Uh, you know, it's my belief that I don't think Scott Strickland is a huge fan of all these crazy buyouts either. I think a lot of ADs are not. We've talked about kind of what goes on in their world and how how you know boosters will buy stuff out so they're not as incented, but. This is going to be, I think, maybe potentially, depending on how things go, this could be the beginning of a of a changing of the tide. You have COVID. You have money that's down across the board. You have fiscal responsibility, image of an organization to look at. If some massive buyout goes out when you've got Texas this year lighting money on fire, right, for Herman, it's not a great look of fiscal responsibility. So keep an eye on that. We'll see what happens. Well, just even a note about uh, Harbaugh's contract with Michigan, he – signed a new one he had no leverage and this is he's such an interesting guy so his is basically his contract was kind of cut in half and then with all the additional incentives on top of it right so the the bonus structure to get him back if he wins at a rate that's you know they would want him to then he's going to get paid a lot of money and then we talked about this last week that's incentives aligning you would be happy to pay your coach if he's winning national championships and winning Big Ten championships, I would I would love that kind of contract for our coach. Any coach is that it's very incentive laden. You know, there has to be some kind of baseline just to keep them like in good faith there for you. But yeah, that was a very interesting moment there with Harbor on Michigan. Very, I will have to see how that affects the market as well. Yeah, that's a great example. And to me, those are the best contracts, you know, in my professional life for the boards I'll consult on. I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion, and I'll push hard for this, no matter the size of the organization, but especially if it's small, the best thing you can do is make sure that your directors and your, and your key support staff know that when things are going really well, there's more of the pot for them to enjoy. And when things are going poorly, there's less for them to enjoy. You need to share on both of those things. True. When you get these, let's call them floor contracts, where the coach is getting paid money no matter what. Not only is it a really bad look when they're losing, but it's also not what you want. And again, for Michigan, what a great example, Alan. If Michigan starts winning national titles, no one is going to care about Harbaugh earning what he's worth by bringing them national titles. But if they're going four and eight 
and he's getting paid $10 million a year, that's a disgusting and bad look where the leader should be sharing in the pain and the frustration. That obviously is what happens in a for-profit business, but the contract world of college football, you get a lot of these situations that are not, in my opinion, as you mentioned, the incentives align. So a lot of really interesting stuff on the business side of football uh, that we, of course, enjoy talking about and bringing you. We'll be following that through the offseason, but keep an eye out for that. Okay, Wesley McGriff is now employed by the Florida Gators, former coach for a lot of programs, most recently Auburn. But look up and down his resume, Miami in the NFL. So very experienced coach in the secondary. I, you know, I don't know if they've completely clarified what he'll be doing, but maybe corners and safeties, maybe just safeties. I'm not sure at this point. Um, veteran guy known as a quality recruiter. Now, you know, maybe a developer, depending on how you look. But, you know, if you're recruiting great guys and they turn out to be great, that's probably good enough. Um, Your thoughts on the hire? This is a solid but not spectacular hire. So he, he, in my opinion, Alan, is a guy who fits a role. And on a staff with a really solid defensive coordinator that knows what role they want him for could be a great hire. On our staff, where we still obviously have a, a major issue at the top, now you kind of have a guy who's older, he's been solid but not spectacular, has really failed when he's had to have the X's and O's part of the game placed upon him. You sort of get a, a stable, this is a stable hire, which on one hand you could say makes sense given that Florida's you know past was instable. This is an improvement of the staff from where we are, but I'll tell you what this definitely is not. This is not a hire of an up-and-coming star to fill your staff with that's going to threaten your DC and or move on elsewhere. This is a guy near the end of his career who wants to find a great place to go coach, is going to do a good job, is not going to threaten anything. So I think that's part of why Florida may have liked this hire, reading between the tea leaves. And that's not to say it's a bad hire. I just think all in all, it's fine is what I look at it as. I'm not lit on fire by it. I'm not running circles around the room happy. It's it's a fine hire. It improves what we had. There could have been more to be done. If I'm coaching the team, I'm looking for a superstar hire everywhere I can and working my way backwards. This is not that kind of hire, but it's it's fine. We talked about recruiting, upping the recruiting profile of the staff, and that this certainly is. You know, He's a guy who's had director of recruiting attached to his name in places. So you know, it's kind of funny because Florida has recruited well in the defensive secretary, especially the last few years. I mean, there's lots of guys who have gone on the NFL. There's a lot of talented guys currently in the program who will be in the program next year. So it's interesting that this is the place where you're kind of the plus recruiter. Um, you know, maybe it does help us get a few more of these bump us up into the little bit higher profile. Um who knows what effect he's going to have on the organization in total. There's already a ton of young talent in the pipeline next year. So hopefully this is a, a you know a positive addition for the staff. It seems like it, it at least fits that trend line. Yeah, I think so. And if you go back and you look at, and I love to do this, look at what all the teams he's been at say about him. And pretty much universally, everyone everyone respects him as a good position coach. That's true. I think Florida's going to get that. I think you're going to see a more sound uh, more technique-oriented secondary. And that, again, has been true no matter where he was at, whether it was Vanderbilt or you know Auburn, most prominently, or other places. He has taken them, made them competent. They play soundly. 
So make no mistake about what I'm saying. It's solid. It's fine. But again, I think at this point in time, if you want to compete with the Alabamas of the world, Alan, you have to be nailing every part of your organization you can. And this is this is fine. This is an improvement. That We'll start with that for sure. And we'll see what happens. The next hire, the one that Florida hasn't hired yet, is a more important hire. And that will, I think, signify perhaps more importantly what Florida's defensive structure is going to look like next year. So the rumors are out there that Florida will hire... Chris Ash, who been at a few places currently, the mo- most recently, excuse me, is defensive coordinator for Texas. Um, this would be an interesting hire. I think this is more of a high profile kind of a hire, right? So he's someone who's been a head coach. He's been obviously a coordinator. Bringing him on, I think, does potentially shake things up, right? Um, I don't know uh, where that leads. You know, he definitely would have a different philosophy than Todd Grantham. Maybe that if he's brought on, do you have to give him the co-defensive coordinator title to bring him in? You know, kind of a coach of his profile. Would he accept like just a coaching the corners or safeties? Maybe. Uh, I don't. So this is not a done deal. I, I don't have firm opinions on Chris, Chris Ash. Chris Ash, he's had some success in places, uh, but it would certainly be an interesting hire. I would be shocked if this happens. So Ash likes to run a four-three defense. Grantham likes to run a busted three-four, which has never really you know been right for us personnel-wise. So there's a huge philosophical difference right there. That's massive. That's a big deal. So okay, one we have scheme differences. Two, why would a guy like Ash, who just in my opinion had Texas's defense vastly improving throughout the course of the year. They were getting shredded early on. It was his first season there, COVID year, et cetera. And by the end of the year, they were playing sound football. So you saw what I value the most, in-season improvement. But he, putting that kind of stuff on film, with the background that he has, come to Florida, where anyone who's paying attention at all knows that you've got Grantham in an untenable position. You have a fan base that is extremely frustrated with where we're at. To then come in and potentially be underneath Grantham, Grantham, there's no equals there. That's not going to work. It's a it's a clash of wills. So I will love to evaluate this if this happens because this is going to be like a soap opera or like your favorite TV drama, which is why I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think Ash in good faith can take this job. It doesn't make sense for him, and it's not going to make sense for Harmony. Although Alan, this kind of hire would be great for Florida because this would bring dissension into the defensive room and a different idea. So I would be in highly in favor of someone who would do that and come in and, and, and have that. That brings a lot of value. I don't know how you're going to make that work. Well, I, don't, definitely I don't think it's like a good idea in the long chaos, run. chaos, which yeah. maybe is better. Right, and that's what I'm saying, right? You don't want to do this. If your organization is functioning well, you don't want to do what I just said. But when your organization is broken and dysfunctional and you're not going to do the right thing, the next best thing is introduce some chaos in the words of you know the Joker, right? And see what happens because we need to polarize what's going on in the defense. But for that reason, I just don't think this will happen and will, of course, keep following the story. So I don't know if it's good. It will be interesting. Uh, Brian Johnson, our offensive coordinator, interviewed for the Boise State job. They end up going a different direction. I, I think it says a lot about how people are viewing him. He's still a very young guy. Um, so he's still very much a plus for this staff. I think it 
you know, it's hard to know totally with all the offensive minds on the staff. And, you know, Dan Mullen is a head coach. He's also very involved in the game planning and play calling. But I, I do think it would be a loss for the staff if he were to leave. So that's, you know, it's completely conjecture on my part. But um, I don't know if he's long for Florida, if his, if his star continues to rise. No, he'll get a job somewhere. And he should. Brian Johnson, by all accounts so far, has been excellent. And to look at a different school's hiring processes, of course, LSU – kind of firing, you know, firing on all cylinders with the Ed Edo is sort of the figurehead and let's hire the best guys we can. You know, they pull the guy from the Panthers that's underneath Joe Brady this past year, pulling back into the NFL. They also interviewed Marcus Freeman as their D coordinator. He wound up going to Notre Dame. So a very different approach, LSU versus Florida right now, right? LSU looking for the best talent they can, a coach who is not Dan Mullen, like Edo doesn't have a discernible schematic advantage. So they try to hire that. Um, whereas Florida doesn't interview Marcus Freeman, doesn't fire the defensive coordinator, hires some different stuff. So you're seeing there's all sorts of different ways to do this. Um, obviously, I, I thought Marcus Freeman would have been a really you know, excellent person to interview for the Florida gig. We didn't do it. He winds up, I think, in a place that he's got to be so happy about because he's from that part of the country. That's where he wants to be, and now he just gets a level jump from Cincinnati to Notre Dame. And look, we'll see. How much of that's Luke Fickle? Probably a pretty good amount. So we're going to find out what Freeman does at Notre Dame. Uh, either way, this part of the season is always fun for a kind of program guy like myself because you get to see the strategies each school is taking trying to reach the top. All right, some Gator personnel player news. In the portal world, the Gators have received a portal transfer. Coming out of the portal is Antonio Shelton, who, if you don't know who that is, I did not either. Uh, red shirt senior from Penn State, a guy who played a lot for them. Uh, so I'll ask myself this question: How important is this? You know, the question is on one hand, I don't know. I don't know who Antonio Shelton. He's a he's a relatively anonymous defensive lineman, but he has a guy who's played a lot of snaps and profiles in the correct way in terms of his size and skill set to play defensive tackle. And so for this particular Florida Gator team, it's massive. Now, on another team, it could be inconsequential, just uh, some extra insurance in case a guy goes down or something, in case we have like three defensive tackle injuries. For this team, he might come in and start right away. And, you know, I was on the podcast last week talking about it would be huge if Marlon Dunlap stayed an extra year. And he's about as replacement level as you could possibly think of he's he might not he might be below replacement level but you would love to have him on your team because of your dire need at that position so this is a big get i think florida could probably even take another guy at this spot um you know if the right guy emerges you just don't want to take anybody necessarily but a guy of shelton's profile is exactly what this team was looking for when it opened up that portal yeah, well said. This is proper resource management. You typically don't want to put your team in the situation Florida has with deficiencies in certain places. But if you have those deficiencies, you need to do something about it. And getting a guy who's played a lot of minutes at you know a power level like Penn State is great. That's a great pickup for us. It's a body that we sorely needed. He'll have lots of experience. That's a win. This is a plus add. I think for his profile, like if he doesn't end up starting for us, that's good. That means one of these younger guys stepped up and is maybe going to be very good, but he'll definitely play next year. 
if I'm understanding who he is as a player. Yeah, it'd be surprising if he's not playing a lot. And that's why that's important for this Florida team. All right. Transferring out of the portal, James Houston. You know, we lose another linebacker, but another, again, a guy who was playing for us, but probably we would prefer him not to because that means other guys are playing better. Um, you know, I don't think this is a big loss. The the Gators have a decent amount of depth at linebacker. A lot of young guys who we would want to see play. I know you're not necessarily. Yeah, you don't want to say you're happy about it. I don't know James Houston personally could be a great guy, but field wise on film, since our coaches, especially on defense and sometimes on offense, seem to get in their own way when it comes to personnel management. It's good when you have guys that you think on film are not good enough to be a top level starter transfer out because that clarifies decision making, which we've seen that seems to be a benefit to the Florida program in general. <laughs> Uh, so I wish him well. I hope he has plenty of success where he goes. But I think this is a plus loss for Florida, if you will, when it comes to roster management, allowing more talented players that fit the bill, in my opinion, for pass happy offenses to get more rest. And it frees up a scholarship spot. Now, again, if we were in the, the linebackers situation, look like the defensive tackles, losing a player of his stature would be very painful. So that shows you we are relative linebacker to defensive tackle there. All right, Jacob Finn, who handled the punting duties for Florida this year, also grad transfer, enters the portal. That seems like kind of funny, except for it makes a lot of sense if, you know, Florida is not likely to keep two punters on scholarship. You know, he received a scholarship, he's a former walk-on, but kind of those conditional one-year-at-a-time ones that you give to walk-ons. And, you know, if he punted his way into someone paying for a grad program for him, that's a great move by him. Doesn't really hurt Florida. I mean, it'd be nice to have him as a walk-on, but you can't fault the guy for being on scholarship somewhere else if he's able to do that. I'm sure the Gators would have him back as a walk-on if that's what ended up occurring. No, good for him. Way to take your opportunity. Put a lot of good film out there. And and hopefully in his case, I think it's going to translate towards what you mentioned, a scholarship and a grad degree. And that's a way. That's a successful way to use your talents. So congrats to him. He served Florida well, and we wish him the best as well. And what felt like surprising news, but maybe shouldn't be surprising news, Evan McPherson just declares early for the draft. The only reason I say surprising because this is rare for kickers. You don't see them declare early. Um, but kind of a sneaky big loss for the Gators in terms of their production next year. Yeah, this is a, a big loss. Obviously, I love McPherson. He struggled to close the season out. Uh, you know, our, our buddy Caleb Sturgis knows him well, evaluates him, continues to think he's a remarkable kicker. He's going to play in the league. The league is going to love him. I think so, too. We gave some of those numbers out there. It, it makes sense for him. What's he going to do here with another year? If he's sure. looking at the team, does he stay if we could win a national title? Oh, absolutely. I don't think he's given that up. I think if he thinks Florida could have won a title, he's going to stay and get the experience. I think he looks at the roster and thinks, we're not winning anything next year. What am I staying for? And uh, is, is there some reason that I need to get a degree? Do I need to do something else? Because I can go be a kicker right now and get paid a million dollars. Or I can be on a very average Florida team for what? So I, that makes sense to me. I understand why that would happen. Um, and yes, Alan, some people texted me like, hey, didn't Alan know that McPherson could have gone? To your credit, kickers rarely leave early. That's not a normal thing. This does make sense to me, though. When right. You look at the, if I the put scenario. him on the list, I would say, well, he can leave if he wants to. I think I don't think he's going to improve his stock or by staying another year. Not going to matter. Yeah. So. Yeah, if you're I mean, that shows you, I think, what level of kicker he has been that he's able to 
potentially leave early there. So it does indeed. Yes. All right. Let's talk about this. Um, our five biggest questions for the off season. So maybe storylines to monitor, you know, these, these things are, some of them will be happening under the radar. Some of them will happening very publicly, but the, maybe the big questions that the skater team needs to answer or deal with as the off season goes on. The first one we talked about a little bit, defensive staff hires. Who does fills that last coaching spot on field? How do they calibrate the structure of this team um, in terms of the coaches? Something to note, you know, through this kind of kooky season as, you know, one firing someplace could touch off a tsunami of uh, other coaches firing, getting hired, replacing people, jobs opening up. The athletic had a great article about the Egg Bowl you know, that kind of kooky moment where Elijah Moore fake peas on the goalpost basically touched off 300 coaches changing jobs, which is crazy when you start up to think about it. So, you know, maybe more dominoes to come. If Urban Meyer, you know, something like Urban Meyer going to the Jags and starts raiding staffs, then all of a sudden those spots have to get filled, which means other spots have to get filled. So who knows what might happen? I don't even know what I'm hopeful for. But definitely, they're going to hire someone. Be interesting to see what we do there. Yeah, that is the key hire. And of course, perfect world. You know, Grantham finds a way to leave us, and here we go. Otherwise, it'll be a grind your gears off season. We already teed it up. That hire is going to tell us a lot. If you get a toe the company line kind of guy, that's another. I think you know, another bad mark against Mullen and his management. If you get a chaos guy. It's still a bad mark because your leader ultimately wasn't strong enough to get rid of the weakest link on their own team, but at least they're recognizing something needs to be done. And uh, it's going to be interesting because, again, I think the smart the smart defensive minds know what's happening at Florida, and I think they're not very likely to take this job. So we're going to find out. We'll see what we'll see what can happen. But that is the that is the story in the off season, assuming Dan Mullen doesn't magically find a way to get an NFL job. All right. The next is uh, continual return to the portal portaling. I have written down here. The Gators could really benefit from helping the trenches here. Now, again, if, if a top profile guy comes along, Dan Mullen has shown he's been able to attract him. Now the big fish out there is Eric Gilbert. I'm saying his name wrong, potentially. Yeah, that's the, right. A R A R I K. Sure, that's it. Yeah, um, the all world tight end from LSU has now entered the portal. Now it seems like Georgia's a possibility. Maybe Florida's in the mix. I think what you're hoping for, if you're Florida, is that you've shown that transfers have had success, and all you have to do is point at Kyle Pitts and say, "There is a spot here. If you think you're like this guy, he just left." Come and do it here. I mean, that isn't always what it comes down to, but that's got to be very attractive to a very high-profile guy like Gilbert. So that would be a huge get if that's possible for the Gators. I mean, that could be a potentially game-changing offensive chess piece there. And they, of course, need help more help along the defensive line. And then the offensive line, if a guy comes through that they like enough to play tackle, seems like guard a little, little more stable there, but... If an offensive tackle, you know, fits the profile of what we need, I'd be surprised if they didn't take him. Yeah, portaling as we're calling it, and I love this, Alan. Is 
where Dan Mullen has excelled the most. If you want to give him the highest grades, even higher than his offensive coaching, <laughs> relative to everyone else in the country, it's actually the portal. We are the kings of the portal, and this is going to be a free agent year on a roster that has a lot of question marks and could be improved rather significantly. So how Florida manages the portal is going to be a huge offseason question uh, and answer session, so to speak. Anytime Florida has a chance to take a top talent off the portal, they should be going for it at a position of need. So we will see if they continue the success they've had in the past several years. If so, that is going to further bolster this roster, uh, which could, again, look different. It could look different. It has looked different every single year. You saw what guys like Justin Shorter did this year. Obviously, Grimes. Imagine Florida without Grimes, right? Those were all transfers. So let's take a look and see what Dan Mullen does Lance, here. I mean, can yeah. you imagine... The Gator season without him? I can't. I, you had to bring that up, didn't you? Uh, but obviously, it's a big deal. Um, and, of course, Florida now with Bowman coming in, right? They have Lingard mm-hmm. coming in. You have a stable of super talented running backs on paper, athletically. Uh, so we'll see what Florida does here. And then the next one is something that we're always talking about, recruiting top talent. Uh, Florida is not very far along in their 2021 class so or excuse me 2022 class you know not just filling it out to get to the level where they were do they continue to make even small strides towards recruiting the best players in the country that remains to be seen um and so i think if they can start to pull some of the best guys in the country that moves them into a different category. We've said this all along. So something to monitor. This has been a weird year recruiting. I I don't know if it's possible for the staff to like take a step and maybe the weirdness helps them. Maybe it hurts them. Who's to say, but that's something that, you know, I'm not a recruiting, but certainly by the time signing day comes around next year, that will be of extreme importance. Yeah. This, in my opinion, continues to be the most important thing. Any championship college coach has to do. It's like a binary switch. Go to your go to your wall. Look at the light switch. If you're not recruiting at tier two or better, that switch is not turning on. I don't care what kind of coach you are. You're not going to win. And so Florida's kind of stuck at two and a half. We've made no real significant progress towards tier two or tier one, especially. And you couple that now with the the defensive hires, the personnel management, and the other things. Now there's more than just that question, but that's the first question we asked in the very first pod posed to Dan Mullen hire. This is going to be his question mark. And we enter year four now. We don't have answers yet. We have stability. He's recruiting at this level. That's just not good enough. And we just went through a year, Alan, where the stars aligned, which we talked about. And you had this perfect combination of transfer players and unheralded players to get this massive output That's highly unlikely to happen in the future, although it could. You have got to up your game there. And and they're just it just has to be done. It's a tremendous weakness for the staff. Uh, Obviously, we'll see what the 2022 class brings. And then the other side of this is the development and chiefly of Emory Jones. So this is going to take place all beneath the radar. I assume you'll see stories written in the fall about how he's improved and how he's gotten better. I do expect him to improve. That would be the natural course of events. But by how much is it 
by a small percentage, which leaves him roughly the same guy he's been? Or can he take a leap as the unquestioned starter of this team? Does Anthony Richardson make a move on him? Uh, this will be, I think, the big story coming of the year is he'll be the most high-profile guy. A lot of you know the stars have left offensively. Not only just a change in quarterback, but a stylistic change. And what does that mean? So this will be for the coaches and players, I think the biggest storyline for them coming into the year. Yeah, a lot of Gator fans have wanted to see Emory for a long time now. Perhaps some of them even secretly hoping Trask would go to the NFL, which was bizarre when I was when I was hearing some of those stories. This will be his job to lose based upon what I've seen. I think that if I were coaching, Anthony Richardson could make a, a serious charge to take the starting job. Given what we know about Mullen, highly unlikely that anyone other than Emory Jones is your starter, especially given the the seeming seemingly you know deferent attitude, if you will, to Jonesy has given him all these years playing him. So I expect to see Emory at starter, whether or not that's the best move. The full season will tell us. And obviously, as you mentioned, Alan, you're going to read a plethora of articles about Emory's turned the corner and done this and done that. And I will say what I always say, let's wait till we see what happens on film. Certainly, Dan Mullen has a tremendous track record with quarterbacks. The question again is, is Emory Dan's next Felipe Franks, where there's someone on the bench that's potentially much better? Or does Emory step into the role and do some things we haven't seen him do yet and become the guy? It's all going to play out. We're going to find out. Uh, if you're a Florida fan, all you care about, all I care about is not the name on the back of the jersey, but whoever is the most productive getting the shot. I could care less if that's Emery or Anthony Richardson or somebody else. You want the next capable quarterback to come in, and you want that guy to be the best at running Dan's offense. Well, the reason people have, I think, been clamoring him for such a long time is because he's been the, he remains the highest-rated guy on Florida's roster in that position. I mean, when he committed to Florida, it seemed like a major coup for Dan Mullen, a, a near five-star quarterback who, you know, pre-Kyle Trask fit the profile of what you'd want to do. I knew nothing about him other than the stars next to his name and they decommitted from Ohio State and committed to us. And it felt like, wow, what a huge win. This maybe is a program changing decision. I don't know that it will be that based on what we've seen from thus far, but you know, he's had that tale of excitement following him just from his recruiting profile. We'll see if he can start to fulfill that. All right. The last off-season storyline. Dan Mullen's been in the spotlight, not just for his on-field stuff, but for his off-field stuff, his demeanor with the press, some things he said, his attitude. How will that affect 2021? Is this a loud off-season for him, a quiet off-season for him? I think that will continue to shape the narrative around Florida. Yeah, this is a watershed moment because you can't you can't continue on the path that Dan is on, as in you can't just stay flat. He's either going to lean more into being I don't know what you want to call him, sort of unpredictable. Well, I called him the, the villain of the SEC earlier in the season that maybe that would be fun, but it hasn't been so fun. But he didn't winning. go in that direction, right? right? Yeah, we talked about Darth Vader Dan, like becoming the bad boy. There was a path that was there. That's not the path this has taken. So now you're in this sort of not great path where he either goes further down that path, which is worse and worse and worse, or you turn around. You can't just stay where he is. It's untenable to be where he is. So these antics will significantly affect Florida's program. They're hanging over it right now, as we've talked about. It's been an incredible souring in the past two months. Of course, he can bring the goodwill back. This is, again, for me, a really a watershed moment. This is the moment where you're at the top of the, the V-shaped roof and you're going to go one way or the other. 
And we're going to see how he chooses to handle this offseason, whether he commits himself to trying to clean up how he handles the press, how he answers questions, what he says after games, how he handles losing. We're going to find all those things out. So this will be an interesting offseason story as well. Okay, this is also the season for these way too early top 25s. That's what everyone calls them. You know, it's kind of fun because they all come out at the same time. So I guess it's not way too early. I like them. I consume them all. Just a little bit of what is the consensus around, you know, the programs heading in to the fall at this point. Obviously, a lot can change. So Florida seems to be around the late teens. Uh, just for example, Mark Schlebaugh at ESPN has them at 16. Stuart Mandel at The Athletic has them at 17. Where would you rank Florida in these if you were doing a way too early top 25? That feels right. I mean, if you look at talent alone, Florida's been recruiting at that tier two and a half, which is above 16th and 17th. But if you look at the aforementioned issues this roster has, the questions hanging over the program and other stuff, new quarterback, et cetera, then you can get this number. You know, this, this, what does a 16th or 17th best team signify? Three losses. That's the best case scenario. I'd be tempted to put Florida even lower. Uh, but a lot of this is going to depend on what's happening. But I, I think to put Florida in the top 15 right now would be crazy to me. Anywhere between 16 and 25 seems reasonable. And they're certainly not going to be unranked because there's too much talent on the team for that to be the case. Sure, this feels about right to me. I was going to say somewhere between 15 to 25, really. I mean, if you were really, really high on Emory Jones, maybe you'd say like 12 or something like that. But if you, it's not like the defense had an off year personnel wise and you expect them to vault back in after like, you know, everyone getting a year older guys coming back from injury. The defense is a huge question mark and now so is the offense. So I don't know that you could really rate them any higher than this. This rating is basically on Florida's talent, talent level and Dan Mullen as a head coach who has always been competent and good. Uh, if Florida is below the 16th or 17th best team in the country next year. That's a major black mark. We should never be below that with the kind of coaching staff we have, you know, and the structure that we have and the talent that we have. So um, that feels like the floor for Florida, fortunately or unfortunately. Yeah, well said. And that's why this is going to be a very interesting year. On the pod, we always say there's different reasons to watch, different reasons to unpack what each team is doing. And you have different expectations, but this year will be a very, very important year and more data points. Well, to let me ask you analyze. this. Here's, and here's what, how important this could potentially have been. Let's say we fire Todd Grantham and hire best defensive coordinator. If that's Marcus Freeman or if that's Walter, whoever your choice was, where would you have put this team? Well, that's what's crazy, right? Is that changes everything. Now, all of a sudden, you think you've got a coach who's capable of, of understanding his deficiencies, who's going to get the best possible talent to surround him with, who's committed to winning. And you look at our roster, which we've said all along, this is this is not a, a 16th to 20th best defensive roster. By recruiting alone, it's not. So then by definition, you say, okay, well, you're probably looking at a team that's ranked between 8th and 14th, which is where we should be, with potential upside if you choose the right quarterback to maybe be a little higher. Now, we're, we're not going to win anything next year, period. There's no way because we still have to face the Clemsons of the world, the Bamas of the world. We're not there yet, right? But you should be where you recruit. That's the goal. If you recruit at tier two and a half, you need to be finishing most years between six and 11. That's where you are. 
So that's the difference. Why 16th or 17th? For all the reasons you mentioned, that's a great question you just asked me. You're potentially moving up eight to nine spots by getting that right. And you're also moving up in perception times an exponential well, amount here, of how people feel yeah. about the program. Well, here's what, here's maybe is illuminating this for me so much. I think you're right about eight to 12 to 14. You're talking about, that doesn't feel like that much of a bump, but then you would start to look at Florida's odds to win the championship and you would go, Hey, I could see them being an outside shot. Like if this defense goes, because there's enough talent there, it could be a top 10 unit. And let's say Emory Jones is, a revelation you have uh, Demarcus Bowman they're running the ball at a prolific rate all of a sudden you see like a outside shot at a national championship now you they wouldn't be the favorite they probably aren't going to do it but all of a sudden those betting odds become like well that's really good value because the odds are high and they could conceivably do it whereas a team who's lower than them are roughly the same profile well that's you're just throwing away money at that point because there's no way they can do it so that one coaching hire alone. Now, maybe the guy you hire is a complete disaster and it tanks the season, but it changes the entire perception about this team and what is potentially possible. And possibilities are only good in the offseason, right? But it w- opens up so many more good things to happen where right now we kind of know the top end is pretty high and the you know there's not really that many good things are going to happen in and around the defensive unit. Yeah, it changes the narrative, and the Gators, in the worst way, needed a significant narrative change and chose not to do it. So, I mean, I think not that that would be the sole reason to make a coaching change, but that just shows you what the perception of not only us, but I think gamblers, people who pay attention to college football, would have about this team. Yeah, and Florida is plus 2,500 to win it all next year, which on our group side, I think people are saying, I wouldn't take it even at plus 50,000, maybe it, 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 and that's the perception, right? It feels so far away. Cause I bet you on our own group that right now, if we say pick your favorite DC, everyone can pick their own favorite DC. And now imagine Dan fires Todd and hires that person right now. What do you think then? And I know on our group that people can start dreaming up all sorts of crazy scenarios. All of a sudden, so plus 2,500 is like, Oh, that's a pretty, that's a great bet. You become a dark horse as you mentioned. And, and Florida every year at tier 2.5 with Dan's offensive coaching acumen should be a dark horse. And that's kind of what we're illustrating here is this is not shaping up to be a dark horse here. And that is not a great thing given that we're in year four of the program. A lot of the players that played were not Dan Mullins players. So, you know, a lot remains to be seen, but a lot of interesting perception of Florida certainly right now. All right, let's close with a little, or close the Gators discussion with a little QB talk. So relative NFL QB rankings, I, clearly Trevor Lawrence is in a tier by himself, essentially, at, at the top quarterback headed into the draft. And then the next, you know, you'll see some combination of Zach Wilson at two, Justin Fields at two. That might surprise people, but a lot of, you know, important, quote-unquote, NFL mock drafters You'll see, you know, whether it's Dane Brugler or even Todd McShay would have Wilson at two. That might change, but he's at least in the mix. Fields, two or three. Trey Lance from North Dakota State, probably in that next slot. Mac Jones. And then there's a little bit of drop off in, you know, Kyle Trask may or not be in these top two round mocks as of right now. You know, this is before Combine, Senior Bowl, all this kind of stuff. Um, thoughts on those? general QB established rankings. All right, here's here's my ranking. 
I have thought no one knows, right? But here are my thoughts based upon watching some of these guys, most of them on film. I have not watched a lot of Wilson and certainly I've watched none of Lance. He played one, one game, game and has barely played quarterback in his whole life. He's a Lamar Jackson comparison if you're not familiar with him. He's got a bigger arm, a much bigger arm than Lamar has, and he's supposedly similarly quick. Hence the the comparisons to him. People are excited about him. He's a super project with like game changing potential. That's not my style of quarterback. So I'm going to give you like how I like to evaluate quarterbacks and the kind of team I build around guys uh, and then say how I would draft these guys. So one, Trevor Lawrence for me. Two would be Kyle Trask, baseball I've seen on film. I think he's perhaps the most, I think if you put him on a team that's good and there's a lot of potential destinations for him that fit, he could be good out of the gate. We'll see what happens. So I go Lawrence, I go Trask. And then this is where I take Fields, although I don't at all really like what Fields is putting out there right now. Like we talked about, I think there's a lot of comparisons in the NFL where maybe three years from now, he's got a really high ceiling. I like his makeup. He's a smart guy. He's a good guy. He's a good team leader. He's a, he's a winner. There's a lot to like about him at his current stage of maturation. And just also knowing your philosophy... And I would share it. If you don't have a quarterback, it doesn't matter. You have to throw as many darts at that. And that's what we're doing. That's what I was going to say, right? So like tier tier one for me is Lawrence. Tier two for me is Trask's. And then and then after this becomes more speculative, in my opinion. So that's what we're talking about. I'm confident. I think Trask can be good in the NFL. Doesn't mean he will be. Uh, and I'm very confident Lawrence should be great in the NFL. Uh, and now it's going to get more murky. So yeah, great question. So Fields becomes more of a dartboard thrower for me. Uh, I personally probably don't take a guy like Fields for, again, my system, how I want to play. Well, at a certain point, you would. Exactly. But I see the upside there. So I'm going to put him there. And then I've seen enough of Zach Wilson to think that he throws the ball really well. He seems to read the field well. He's a bit of a gunslinger. I actually like that. And guys coming into the NFL, I think you don't want to be Tua, who won't throw the football. You want to be a guy who slings it around and learns that way. So I like that about him. So I'm going to put Wilson there. He's a project, though. He's another tier for me. I'm separating these guys with Smalley, right? So he's the next tier. Then I put Mac Jones, who I think is a capable, typical Bama guy. I don't see anything about Mac Jones that leads me to believe he's a Super Bowl-capable winning quarterback. So I'm just putting him in like ready to play now. And then I put the moonshot. Lance is the moonshot of this class. Lance is the guy that you take him, and if he hits, it's like mega boom. It's like game-changing modern football, can throw 70-yard bombs, can sprint all over the place. It's a nightmare for the defense. But he is like such a deep project that you are like, you're either going to hit the moon or you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna fail, right? Um, so that's kind of my like readiness to the NFL scale is what I'm looking at. And then if you want to assign that moonshot value, if you want to win a Super Bowl and your team's not absolutely loaded on defense and talented, Mac Jones becomes off the table for me. And we're just making wild speculations. I could be way wrong and we'll come back on this podcast and laugh. Cannot win a Super Bowl. I can make a case, in my opinion, that Lawrence and Fields and Kyle Trask and Lance can win a Super Bowl just on what I could dream up, right? Again, with Lance being by far the biggest outlier. Wilson, for me, is somewhere in between. I I just, it doesn't seem like it to me. People are really high on him. I don't know. And then for Mac, I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm discounting him heavily, maybe. I don't know. That's how I look at it. That's what I think about it as. That's where I'm at. It's going to be really fascinating to watch this draft class like so many others to see how the actual performance turns out. Once upon a time, Pat Mahomes, right, was not drafted as early as others. Well, and when the Chiefs took him with the 11th pick, people are like, whoa, I thought he was going to be late first. They're crazy. Second. Exactly. Right. And it looks like the best decision anyone ever made. So 
if you took Trey Lance at like 13 or 14, that's a lot of draft capital to expend on somebody who has a huge bust rate. But I, I don't know. There's certain places where I go, yeah, let's roll the dice here. We got a little bit of extra capital. Let's do it. Um, Wilson is a guy who's fascinating to me because I've, I've watched him play. I, I'm intrigued by him. I'm almost more intrigued by other people's intrigue. Yes, that's kind of how I feel. So I would want... Now, I'm not a person who's watched a ton of his tape. I've, I'm not a scout like who's looking at every throw he's made throughout his entire career. But so is this a... So Trey Lance is Josh Wilson, essentially. Or Josh... Uh, Allen. Josh Allen, thank but you. But not the same, like, stature. Right, right. But, like, a guy who's, like, he could be incredible. Yeah, he could deep, be terrible. Yeah, boom bust, yeah. High boom bust. Because you can talk your... I mean, the cautionary tale here is Mitch Trubisky, who the Bears traded up for, gave up draft capital to move up a spot with Deshaun Watson and Pat Mahomes left on the board, right? So that will be one of the what-did-you-do stories forever. Like, just a colossal error. But those other two guys could have been bust, and Mitch Trubisky could have been Aaron Rodgers, right? And you're like, it wouldn't have mattered. You'd say, yeah, give up that capital. It doesn't matter. You have the guy. So you have to be very careful <laughs> in dealing with quarterbacks so they'll get you hired or fired. And there's a lot of intriguing guys. It's funny that you would put Kyle Trask, too. I, I'm tempted to do that as well. There's so many question marks around all these other guys. Now, I think the ceiling is higher for some of them because they just have more athletic tools than Kyle Trask has. But in terms of who's going to be successful in the NFL, you know, Mac Jones, if you're, here's the thing. I think Mac Jones, if he wants, will play in the NFL for 15 years, right? He could be Chase Daniel, right? A guy who's always going to be very talented backup, can start for you, can win games for you, but would you wouldn't want to be your starter. He might be better than that. I don't know, but that feels like what he would be to me, right? Yeah, and that's why you don't want to draft that guy, right? In my opinion, in, you in draft him in the fourth of, round. Fine, draft him as a backup. But in my school of drafting quarterbacks, that's not the guy I want to draft. Right. I want the Super Bowl winning quarterback, and I'm going to do it every year until I hit on one because that's what you should be doing. Because no other player even remotely matters compared to your quarterback in the grand scheme of everything. You have to have the quarterback. Or the odds of you winning are, are tiny. Can it be done? Yes. Is it likely? No. So he profiles to me a, a little bit, maybe like Kirk Cousins. That's not a, that's not could, a bad comparison. Could at be all. a little bit. If he's a little bit better with Kirk Cousins, could you win a championship? I think you could. They were close. They're in the deep into the playoffs. If you have an elite defense, yeah. Well, that's, and they had like one roster. of the best possible. That's the problem, right? Every, right? Your margin of error is like tiny. I want to win with the with the biggest margin of error I can have. Which in the NFL is not a lot, but that's got to be the goal. That's why it's like I look at Mac Jones and think I'm taking somebody else. Like I, I, I mean, let me give, let me get a, another moonshot guy. Let me take Lance over him. Right. Well, that's why you draft Pat Mahomes because if he exactly. becomes Pat Mahomes and he gives you the, I, the Chiefs are down by ten. It does, seemingly does not matter. Right. They're going to win by fifteen because he's so good. Yeah. And here's the real key, right? Is you have to. And this is what you've heard me say. I'm not going to take a guy like Justin Fields if I'm coaching because that's not how my offensive football brain works. And you, you need to understand that. I'm not saying mine is better than someone else's. That's actually the opposite of what I'm saying. There's a lot of different ways to win in football. On this podcast, you guys get to hear how much I like passing, but there's other ways to win for sure. 
And again, one is not necessarily better than the other if all of them are like proven evidence-based ways to win. Now, some strategies are, are not good. So if you take a guy like Lance and you put him on the Ravens right now who have mastered how to use Lamar Jackson, his chance of success skyrockets. If you put him with someone like me who wants to run a cerebral, you know, read-based offense, pre-snap, post-snap, a lot of like moving parts, that is a horrible match. That's not good. So you wouldn't want those two to go together. And this is one reason why the NFL is fascinating to both of us, Alan, is oftentimes, right, I'm the coach, you're the GM. I'm like, look, here's my system. Here's what I run. I want this. And you go out and you give me Lance. And I'm like, Alan, no, no, like this guy's talented. I can't, I don't have to do with this guy, you know? And that happens all the time in the NFL. So Andy Reid's example, Andy Reid knows exactly what he wants in a quarterback. And he saw that in Pat Mahomes. I think that's what's going to happen with Trask. I think people are going to see Trask and they're going to say, this guy with my team right now, I think could be the guy we need to get it done with. Now we're going to see if that's true or not. Whereas Lawrence says, no matter what team I am, I'm taking Trevor Lawrence. I'll build a team around Trevor Lawrence, right? right? And these are the differences we're giving you. We're articulating them. It's really fun. But ultimately for you and I, I think we're aligned. Don't take a quarterback unless you think you can win a Super Bowl with them. Or maybe your team is already so loaded you just need a game manager that's going to be really smart and cerebral, but that's highly unlikely because you can get a free agent quarterback to do that. You don't need to draft a guy to come into your system. Yeah, so the Mac Jones feels like his ceiling and his floor are almost the same. Mm. And well said, yeah. And that, but isn't high enough that I think who would you know? Is he Andy Dalton? It's fine. You can win with Andy Dalton, but you that'd be a great career for Mac. Yes, Jones, exactly. Honestly. So that's, I think that's, Mac Jones. Yeah. Sounds like we're saying he's going to be a bust. I don't think he he probably can't be a bust in some sense because he's, if you're just looking at success rates in life, he's going to pl- seemingly play in the league for forever, which is phenomenal. Where Trey Lance might never take a snap in the NFL ever, and that's Correct. what we're talking about with the moonshot. Absolutely, and, that, and that's good. That's a great great way to say that. It, it's tough because again, like the guys like Mac Jones in the world, you sort of they get dogged unintentionally. Because like you just said, wait a minute, Well, Chase Daniel is a great example. Most NFL fans are like, what? I can't stand Chase Daniel. He's terrible. Yet he's good enough to play in the NFL every single year as a backup. And a lot of NFL fans don't know why, right? But he's just not good enough to be a starter. And that's the cruel reality of life. That doesn't mean he's a failure. He's a tremendous success. He's one of the best 100 quarterbacks in the whole world. But when you compare him to a starting quarterback, he just is not it. And that's not to knock, demean, take away from. It's just reality and when you're, you know, when you're, when you're GMing an NFL team, that's the reality you live in. You can't draft a bunch of replacement players because you don't win. You have to have some of these exceptional guys, and that's what makes it fun and it makes it impossible, right? No one can predict these things. We're doing it here for you now, so we can go back and probably make fun of ourselves for how wrong we were about our picks. But it's a good time nonetheless. Yeah, and I would say I'm I'm very intrigued by Wilson and Fields. We'll we'll see what happens. I I wouldn't make bets on them, but also wouldn't bet against them. Yeah, so. they're in the murky area, the mud area, the wait and see, the watch it happen area. Worth taking for sure. Okay, you want to handle Daytona Steve All right, here? so we got Daytona Steve, which we talked about. We'll be back. That's We, we teased that already. He's coming back. We'll be ready for that. We'll release his bets um, and, and on future episodes. We will come back discussing more Florida football after National Signing Day. Why not before? Well, because nowadays National Signing Day is like a – it's like a coda to the process. Right. Maybe you sign one or two guys or three or four at the most, but it's not what it once was. So we will break down Florida's recruiting class for 2021 in depth and detail at that point in time, give you the final tier grades, walk you through it. That will be early February. 
And since we're not going to be with you for a couple of weeks, right now we'll talk about basketball. We had teed up the early season discussion. Uh, to recap my feelings, I was I was done with Mike White last year. Felt like we had enough data. Felt like I knew what he was. Past two games for Florida have been brutal, and I think have showed us more of the same. Of course, we don't have Keontae. Doesn't matter. This team just looks the same to me, Alan. Uh, what are your feelings on basketball? Not hire or fire Mike White, but just... I'm still at the same point is what I'm saying. I'm unchanged. I feel the same way. I feel like we need someone other than Mike. Where are you in your, in your B-ball, you know? Well, they right sucked now? me back in a little bit at the beginning of SEC play. You know, I think this is going to be a kind of a gutty, fun team. You know, you're going to see a lot of Trey Mann. I like some of the pieces, you know, let's shoot the ball. Let's have fun. You're missing Keontae. So your ceiling is very much lowered. I think the last two games have maybe exposed them a little bit for they are majorly lacking. I mean, they got pants by Kentucky who had lost six games in a row. And now Kentucky is improving. And Kentucky won two SEC games against the bottom level competition. Didn't look great doing it. And right. then crushed Florida. And a very competent Alabama looked night and day better than Florida. With and- a coach, by the way, who's been there. Just two years. Two years. And you're seeing the fruit of his coaching scheme, philosophy, et cetera, versus Mike White, who's in year four. Those are those are differences you have to look at and really explore when you're evaluating a coach. So I this feels like this is gonna be a bummer every year. I've settled into that. I, even after the Conte injury, I was like, this team could still make the tournament. They still can. But the last two games have been like, oof, if we continue in that trend line. And now, again, this could be a very up and down where it's like you watch one game, you're like, hey, they're kind of fun. They're kind of spunky. They could, they're going to be a fun team in March. Not that they're going to win it, but that maybe they could pull an upset or something. Or if you watch the last two games, you're like, oh, they're very far away. So there's another game tonight. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, that might be just a very emotional up and down team. Uh, it's a tough spot to put them in when you lose your best player, you know, SEC preseason player of the year. I don't know if he would have been that, but he is at least the guy who's they wrote his name down. Yeah, so he certainly came you, out of the gate hot. Too. Yeah. He was playing really well. And yeah, it's just tough, man. It's not exciting at all, unfortunately. No. And, and what's funny is I actually like individually a lot of the players on this team, mm-hmm. which is why it's extra like nail in the coffin for me. Is it's like, listen, I think a lot of these players actually have some skill and talent, and we just look lost at doing anything competent frequently. So it's not as bad as some years have been for me watching this team. Like, you're going to go in, probably not going to win all that often. We're going to lose against the better teams. We are feisty. We have some individual talent that's kind of fun to play. Castleton's really solid yeah, basketball player. I really like watching him play. I love watching Trey Mann play. So I find myself watching and not being emotionally invested because I feel like this is the end result. So there's been worse and more frustrating basketball years for me. We wanted to give you a little b-ball discussion, nothing too analytical, just kind of a state of the union, if you will, as we head into February here. Uh, Alan, anything else? I uh, know that's it, I think. All right, we sat out to do this bonus pod. I once again incorrectly said to Alan, this won't be very long. Here we are at an hour, you know, 40 minutes plus. Hopefully you enjoyed all of this content. As always, we certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Enjoy the rest of your January. We will see you in early February. Uh, and until then, go Gators.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.